Hello and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. I'm Edna Watka, correspondent for Publishers Weekly. Today I'm speaking with Detective Lieutenant Joe Kenda, whose book, I Will Find You, is being published by Hachette Center Street, the sponsor of today's LitCast. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm fine, and you? Doing well, thanks. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you better through the book. I'm curious, for people who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm married with two children. I was a policeman in Colorado Springs, Colorado for 23 years and six months. Of that time, I spent 19 years in homicide. I made all my rank in homicide. I had a solution rate of 92%. Of my cases, the national average runs between 58 and 62, so a little higher than that. A phenomenal record, to say the least. And you did, from what my notes say, 387 homicide cases. Is that accurate? That's correct. 387 cases. Of those, 356 were cleared by arrest. 31 were not. They were open cases. We have since resolved one of those, so we're down to 30. The one we resolved was what I was, who I always thought it was, but we had new DNA tests developed, and we were able to try and convict that individual. So now down to 30 cases unsolved, 357 solved. So once a homicide detective, always a homicide detective. Of course. Never stop working, even uh, in retirement. Why would you? And the book is a uh, a spin-off, if you will, of a television show that you've starred in for several years now. Could you tell us a little bit about that, just so we can bring re- listeners up to speed if they don't uh, have a subscription to cable? Investigation Discovery is one of Discovery's uh, networks, and they feature true crime stories. My show involves a presentation of a murder case, which I was involved in from the discovery of human remains and to a courtroom and how we got there in one hour, from A to B to C and to Z. Uh, People find it to be fascinating, and uh, we interview the uh, survivors of the victim. We interview sometimes even a perpetrator who is now out of custody. The uh, Homicide Hunter Lieutenant Joe Kenda is the title of the program. It's been on, and now Season 7 premiered a couple of weeks ago. At the end of the season, there'll be 102 episodes of the show already filmed. It's in 178 countries in over 100 languages, so it's all over the world. Did you ever have an inkling that your life would be so interesting to so many people? Or did you feel, as you're going through your day-to-day, that this is something that not everybody should or want to experience? Because so much of what you describe is quite... Um, to say dramatic, to say the least, but often um, some of the most villainous things I've ever read about in my life. Well, I never suspected that this would ever go anywhere, but to me, I never wanted it to. I was, I was interested in the work. When somebody does something unspeakable to someone, you have two options. You can remain seated or you can stand up. I stood up. I was proud of that. The rest of this just fell my way. I can't tell you really explain it very well, but it came to be that there's a television show. If you'd have told me 10 years ago that I'd have a television show and a book, I would accuse you of being on weapons-grade narcotics. But here we are. 
It has happened. I believe you were a car salesman and a bus driver in between being a, a retired homicide detective and now a TV star. Yeah, I took the usual career path. Uh, I went from uh, homicide <laughs> detective to special needs bus driver to uh, international TV star. Doesn't everybody do that? Magnificent. In the book, you echo several things that we hear in the in the show. Um, among them is which there are only three motives for murder. Could you go over those for us? Sure. It's, uh, humans are simple. They don't like to believe they're simple. We all like to think we're very sophisticated, but we're not. Money, sex, and revenge drive people's emotions. Emotions drive murder. Money, sex, and revenge. That's what they all come down to or some combination thereof. Human interaction involves money, sex, and revenge. And the result of that is those of you and those of, among us who cannot control their emotions do violent things. The most violent animal on this planet is a human being. And we sometimes demonstrate that clearly to our fellow men. As a consequence of being exposed to so much violence, you talk about in the book how essential it is for you to um, absent your own emotions from a crime when you first encounter it. It's the only way you can be clear enough to see what might have happened. That's absolutely true. Uh, you have to take yourself out of the moment or you can't do your job. To be a professional at this line of work is not simple, nor is it easy. But if you can distance yourself from your feelings and remain professional, you can be quite effective in this line of work. If you don't do that, you're terribly ineffective. And you also mentioned that the who and what is far more important than the why. Uh, is that still the case even after the fact, are you not curious with some of the cases you revisited as to the why? Why is a jury question. I'm only interested in why until it leads me to who. After I know who, I don't care about why. The human mind is a very complicated business machinery. If you were to ask the person responsible for that murder why they did it, they probably, truly, couldn't explain it to you or even to themselves. It's a waste of time to consider that. It's a waste of time to consider that if we knew that, we could somehow avoid it in the future because it's not possible. Not possible to avoid. Violent crime is part of humankind. It always will be. There is no sophistication, there is no level of education that can control the rage that is in all of us. It is in all of us as it always has been. From the days of the Serengeti plan to now. And if you have a PhD in astrophysics or you're a graduate of the third grade, you're capable of killing another person. They just have to have the proper motivation. And certainly that this can be exacerbated by narcotics. I think you indicate 65% of murder cases are either motivated by or involved with narcotics in some way, shape, or form. Does that seem correct? Narcotics alter the mind. 
So your control, your moral compass, everything about you, your knowledge of right and wrong, your feelings of empathy, sympathy, love, guilt, all those things are severely altered or even eliminated by the use of chemicals. This country has an insatiable desire to buy and use drugs. We are a society who is wealthy. We have relatively large amounts of leisure time. And people who are prone to that behavior seek out drugs constantly to satisfy whatever they think is missing in their existence, resulting in an altered person. This is not the person that was raised by mom and dad. This is somebody else entirely. Thus, they are therefore dangerous. Also, money plays a part in narcotics because the business of narcotics is a cash business. They make more money than corporate America, and it's all in cash. They don't take plastic or Bitcoin or any other nonsense that's true in the modern day. <laughs> not yet they don't. Yeah, not, mon- not, not yet they don't. They take money. And the result is, if you disregard the rules of the road, you fail to pay for narcotics, you don't pay enough, you don't pay on time, then you are looked upon as a risk to their business. They have to make an example out of you that they won't tolerate this behavior. Hence, homicide is the answer. So that's why so many murders are contributory to the narcotics problem. Gotcha. One of the things that I found really intriguing about the book was the way you outlined the differences between reality detective work and television detective work. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about some of those differences? For example, the chalk line no longer exists, really. We haven't used the chalk line since the 1930s, to my knowledge. Uh, you use measuring tapes, video, and still camera. No chalk line. The, the thing that amuses me the most is they, they make a physical arrest of an individual, and they advise him of his rights. Everybody does it. It's in all the movies. It's on all the TV shows. And it couldn't be further from the truth. There's only one reason to advise a person of their rights, and that's custodial interrogation. And it's a two-pronged test. He has to be in custody, and he has to know he's not free to go. And secondly, he has to understand that you are focusing on him as a suspect in a specific crime. At that moment, he will advise. If I come to your kitchen and refer to you as some murdering creep who killed his neighbor, and I harass you, and you confess to it, and your lawyer says, that's going to be thrown out, Your Honor. He wasn't advised of his rights. You weren't in custody. You were in your kitchen. That's admissible. So to advise somebody their rights upon arrest is pointless. It isn't done. But it's done in the movies. So therefore, it must be true because God makes movies, and therefore, everything in it is so. In the book, you also talk about how you encountered just a single serial killer your entire career. Uh, whereas, if you watch movies and television, you would think that this was a ubiquitous problem around the country, if not around the entire world. you mind talking about a little bit about that experience and your observations? It is absolutely not a problem. This is why most people know the names of the serial killers have been discovered. John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy. Everybody knows those names because they are an extremely 
rare individual. Extremely rare. The fact that I encountered one in my career surprised me. Because they are so rare. Many policemen never encounter one. I encountered one quite accidentally, but I did. But those things are not what, uh, what, what, the, what the entertainment portrays. And entertainment can even poison our jury pool in the modern day. Murder case recently in the Springs where the jury sends a note to the judge. As, as, want a question answered? Judge returns to the deliberation room. Yes. Why wasn't this test performed? And the judge looks at this as a true story. The judge looks at the document and says, well, there's no such test. And the, the foreman of the jury, the foreman of the jury, said, but they have it on CSI. I thought you said these were 12 of my peers. I submit to you that these are not 12 of my peers. So that leaks into everyone's psyche that this is the way things are. We have a fingerprint. My God, we have the fingerprint. That's all we need. Oh, really? That's one of your favorites, isn't it? It's so ridiculous. It's, it's useless. Ultimately, it's useless. If you have your fingerprints in the murder scene, aha, you are the murderer. No, I play cards here every Tuesday. Of course, my fingerprint. You do say that you have faith in DNA evidence, though. Is that correct? Because it's scientific. It truly is scientific, developed for the medical industry. But there is a false promise with DNA. People still perform the tests. And as a result, they can, by mistake or even sometimes by design, alter the result. There are four lab people in Houston uh, who were recently charged with uh, crimes because they altered the test results. They saw themselves as vigilantes. Certain individuals with a long criminal history needed to be guilty of something, and they changed the test results. So there's always an issue when humans are involved. If we could just get those robots to work properly, none of this would happen. But we haven't figured that out yet. Well, in this regard, being a homicide detective is very much a art instead of a science, which is something you talk about when you describe your interrogation techniques. Is that indeed your own feeling about it, or do you feel it can be something that can be, um, there's a method behind the madness, if you will? No, I don't think there is. I think that it's unique to each individual. You have to do find something, usually by trial and error, sometimes by awful error, but you have to find something that you're comfortable with that fits your personality that you can do to cause someone to open their mouth, to make them talk to you, to make them tell you what they feel and think, whatever that is. And sometimes you have to determine that by making mistakes or by doing it a lot first and maybe not being successful. But you have to develop a plan that works for you. The technique I used worked for me. I don't know if it would work for anybody. Work for me. Back to the book itself. Why a book now and uh, why now? And what do you hope that readers will get from the experience of reading this book? Other than uh, a few nightmares, which is certainly I, I came away with uh, at least a few dark thoughts after reading this book. That's for sure. Welcome to the club. <laughs> you write about that. In addition to writing the book to respond to 30 years of nagging by my lovely and radiant wife, I just decided for the first time since I started the TV show, I said more of that camera than I ever said. I swallowed all of this. It's not good for you. 
now that I have released some of it through the television, I thought it was time to release even more of it through a book. So this book, like it or not, is honest to the core. It is what I say. It's what I experienced. It's what I did. And I wrote it from my heart. Excellent. And is there anything that people consistently get wrong about you, your career, or the work you've done, either as a writer now or through the television, that you want to make sure to correct? Here's a great opportunity to tell people what they're getting wrong about you, if anything. They are. They are. People would like to believe that I am the Wizard of Id, that I somehow got all this figured out. Police work is a team. I had great people around me. I worked for great people. I was a member of a great department. We worked together to bring all these cases to conclusion. I wouldn't have solved any of them without their help, without their assistance, without their knowledge, without their participation. I got selected as the voice because I can speak English. And I come across as a storyteller, and so that became useful. And in the TV world, they want to focus on one individual to avoid confusion. It leaves somewhat of a false impression that I somehow was the lone ranger wandering around doing all this. And I certainly wasn't. I absolutely was not. I was a detective, then I was a detective sergeant, then detective lieutenant, then a commander of major crimes, and all kinds of people I worked with, people who worked for me. All those kinds of things were happening. But the truth of it is, it is a group effort and not an individual act. Very important point for everybody to remember. Takes a, takes a village, as they say. Unfortunately, it only takes one person to commit murder, from what I can tell, after having read about so many in your book. Very dramatic. And I just want to say thank you very much for your time today. This has been edifying and enlightening. And it was a real pleasure to um, get into your head a little bit through the book and to have further conversation. It's really been um, a joy. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. <laughs>